been when they reject Christ and the authority of Christ from God. So the parable. What is going to be pointed out is that they're guilty through this parable. It's going to be pointed out that they're guilty of actually rejecting God's Messiah. And they're going to bear the consequences on themselves and then the consequences for the whole nation. Now, the parable and what Jesus is trying to convey can be looked at from four perspectives, four points. So, the first one. The parable is an allegory. It's an allegory that retells the history of Israel. The man who plants the vineyard is God. God planted Israel. Brought Israel out of Egypt. Planted Israel in the land of Canaan. The vineyard then represents the people of Israel. They're the people that God planted. The tenants represent the Jewish leadership throughout Israel's history. It represents those who were kings, uh, those who were high priests and involved in the priestly ministry, those who were the elders of the people. Then the servants that, that are mentioned in the parable, uh, the ones who were sent to collect the fruit from the vineyard, they represent the prophets whom God sent again and again and again. And their mistreatment represents how badly the leadership of Israel throughout Israel's history would treat God's chosen messengers. Now, the Old Testament reflects this. And the Jewish delegation from the Sanhedrin knew this history because they knew their scriptures. Second Chronicles chapter 36, verse 15 and 16 says this, The Lord, the God of their fathers, now remember, Second Chronicles is written toward the end of the Old Testament because it rehearses almost all the history of the Old Testament. So this is written the 5th century before Christ comes. So this summarizes a thousand years of, of Israel's history. And it says, The Lord, the God of their fathers, sent persistently to them by his messengers because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. But they kept mocking the messengers of God, despising his words and scoffing at the prophets until the wrath of God rose against his people until there was no remedy. So, so all of that represents the history of Israel. It represents the spiritually disastrous history of Israel. But then the parable goes on to tell us something that's far worse. The parable is also a statement about current events. Not our day, their day, Jesus' day. The climax of the parable is that the owner sends his beloved son, the son whom he loves. Now, for the Jews, that phrase had a kind of an idiomatic meaning. Its, its first and most famous usage was found in Genesis chapter 22. Recall the story where God tells Abraham, Abraham, take now your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to a mountain upon which I will tell you in order to sacrifice him. Now, of course, everybody knows that God had two sons. He had Ishmael, the son of the handmaiden, Hagar. And then he had Isaac, the son of his wife, Sarah, 
who is specifically the son that came out of divine prophecy. He was the son of promise. So from the standpoint of God speaking to Abraham, God is saying, Isaac is your only son. He is the son of your love. He is your beloved son. So when Jesus tells the parable, and he says, then the owner of the vineyard says, I will send my son, my beloved son. Well, this connects. The Jews know their history. They know that this means the son is the promised one. They recognize this has messianic implications. Jesus intends for them to recognize that after everything that happens in Israel, in the history of Israel, what is happening in their day is that God has sent his beloved son. And so he intends the Sanhedrin delegation to understand you are guilty of rejecting God's only son. Current history, it's happening right now. This is what you the tenants of the vineyard. This is what you, the leaders of the Jews, this is what you are doing. But furthermore, using the parable, Jesus is telling them he understands exactly what they're going to do next. They're going to seize him and they're going to kill him. Through this parable, Jesus is warning them that he has prophetic knowledge of exactly what they're going to do. And that leads then to the third part of this parable's interpretation, or what Jesus is doing with this parable, is the divine threat of national doom and the loss of Israel's mission because they're going to reject the Son. So Jesus asked this question to them. What will the owner of the vineyard do? That is, when they kill the son, what will the owner of the vineyard do? And then Jesus responds, the owner will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. So Jesus is warning them that God is going to destroy them for killing him. God will bring an end to the leadership of Israel. God will take the divine mission away from Israel and give it to others, namely to the Gentiles. Now we see this reflected in the the life and ministry of the Apostle Paul in a number of ways. It's reflected in the commission that God first gives to him, but it especially shows up at at the beginning of his first missionary journey. They've gone through several towns in in southern Turkey. They're at uh, Antioch of, of Pisidia. And what happens there is that the whole city gathers together, Acts 13, 44. The whole city gathers together to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy, and they began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you, meaning to the Jews, since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring my salvation to the ends of the earth. Now, of course, this national doom that Jesus prophesies and threatens against Israel, it happens, A.D. 70. 
the Jewish rebellion that had begun just a few years earlier then brought the Jerusalem being entirely surrounded by Roman armies. The attack upon Jerusalem lasts for three and a half years. It's a battle siege. The walls are finally broken down. The Roman soldiers slaughter the hundreds of thousands of starving Jews who were locked up in the city. Man, woman, child. And then the temple is first of all looted of all of its vast treasury. Every bit of gold, every bit of silver, every bit of bronze is completely melted down and taken out. And then they dismantle the temple completely so that not one stone is left upon another. What had become a false faith because of their rejection of the Messiah is now utterly destroyed. And the religion which the Jews practiced thereafter is not a biblical religion. It doesn't have the priesthood. It doesn't have the sacrifices. And it doesn't have the temple. Those things are gone, and they are gone forever. Then Jesus uses this parable as a segue into confronting the Jewish leaders with one of the most important Old Testament prophecies about the rejection of the Messiah, how the Messiah is going to be rejected by the leaders of the Jews, and so this is what he comes to in verse 10. He brings up, confronting them, he brings up Psalm 118, verses 22 and 23. He challenges them with this question. Have you not read this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it was marvelous in our eyes. In other words, they are the fulfillment of this prophecy. They are the builders who are rejecting the chief cornerstone. They are the ones who are rejecting the stone who is the Messiah. And so this whole episode and story ends with verse 12. And they were seeking to arrest him, but feared the people. For they perceived that he told the parable against them. So they left and went away. Now, that takes us to our second point. The second point is about looking how we can apply this parable. How can we actually see this parable in terms of its application to the church? It's the matter of sidelining Christ. Now, the, the, the reason why we can actually take a parable like this and then look at its application and lessons and implications for the church is because we're taught by Scripture to look at history in light of Scripture. First um, Corinthians chapter 10, verse 6, for instance, this is what Paul says about the Old Testament events that happened. He said, now these things, meaning the history of Israel, the Old Testament events, things happening during the Exodus, now these things took place as examples for us that we might not, that we might not desire evil as they did. And then in another passage, Romans chapter 15, verse 4, again, the scriptures are, are designed for us in terms of looking at the applicatory lessons to how we live for Paul writes this, for whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures we might have hope. So let me get five observations out of this parable 
as we think about the history of the church, as we think about the church today, as we think about our own lives and ministries today. First of all, appreciate this. Appreciate that the Jewish people were very religious people. And therefore, even within the family of Bible-believing traditions, and you have to say that the Jews were a Bible-believing people. At one level, of course, they were Bible-believing, exceptionally religious, defined their whole existence religiously. Very religious people can go terribly, terribly wrong. Being religious does not insulate you from being the enemy of God. Being religious in a Bible-based way doesn't protect you from becoming the adversary and enemy of God. That's what happened with the Jews. It's also happened in Christian history. Secondly, it always begins with a mishandling of the Scriptures. Always. It, 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 it happens because people take Scripture and they make it something other than leading us back to Jesus Christ. It, it always involves taking some aspect of biblical truth, but then using it to distort other parts of biblical truth, or worse, even to discredit some other parts of biblical truth. Now, most often this happens, this misuse happens by misusing the moral and ethical vision of God's Word. The Bible has an ethical vision. We're told in Scripture how to live morally and righteously and ethically. That's of great importance. But it is not the main thing. Your righteousness, in terms of your active morality and ethics, not the main thing in Scripture. Yet, so often, it's been made the main thing. So what happens is that the Christian mission is often envisioned as making us better people, more competent people, better people for life in this world. That was the main thing, one of the main things that the Pharisees were doing in Jesus' day. They were teaching the law, and they were teaching all kinds of strategies to keep the law, so that if you kept the law and followed all of these strategies of keeping the law, you would keep your accepted place in the eyes of God. It was all about how you performed up to the law of God. That was the main thing. Now, thirdly, in company with this, this sidelines Christ. The sideline of Christ always shows up in God and his word being used to justify a very worldly focus and a very worldly-oriented focus other than God's main mission. For instance, uh, let's consider Israel. Take all of the Old Testament scriptures. 
all the messianic passages, all the promises of a messianic age. And, and what did they do with all of that? They translated that into a very worldly mission. Overthrow Rome. That was it. The popular Jewish thinking, the big problem, Roman armies occupying our land. And our leaders are compromisers with them. They saw that as the main thing rather than redemption in the Messiah. Think of the Roman Catholic Church and its history. At the time of the Reformation, the Roman Catholic Church had become all about their dominance and control over culture and politics. Not the gospel. Not the redemption of sinful human beings. Think about the liberalism that came in in the the late 1800s and all through the 20th century and now into the 21st century. What we consider to be liberal churches. Its focus was on the idea that the kingdom of God is in the world. And and, and the mission of the church, therefore, is to cure the evident evils and and brokenness of culture. Uh, To change cities. To eradicate poverty. To liberate the oppressed and the downtrodden. Not redemption from sin. If some of you have paid much attention to any of this, you wonder why at times liberal Christian theology sounds so much like Marxism. Not a whole lot of difference. And it's why within liberal theology, one strong dominant branch spread throughout Central and South America was called liberation theology. Dressing up Jesus changing his Bible to a red book with the sayings of Chairman Mao (laughs) and a a robe that was colored red all the way through, but not the red of the blood of Christ, but the red of a Marxist communist perspective. Because what is Marxism? Down with the rich and wealthy, let's take care of the poor and the downtrodden. Bible-believing churches in America today. They're following similar paths. They're trying to make people and the world a better place. They're trying to take the ethical vision of Scripture and they're making it or attempting to make it the main theme. We, we can see this in all of the big issues today that are happening within many Churches that have a Bible-believing heritage. Uh, What is the main cultural trauma? Identity politics. And so, what is happening within evangelical churches? Well, we've got to address this thing that's happening within the culture. But there is too often a failure to see how all of those issues, every issue of human identity, whether it's aberrant sexuality, whether it's confusion about gender, even issues of race and ethnicity, all of these issues, as they 
evidence of brokenness of culture and struggles and problems, all of them are rooted in the problem of sin. For which there's no answer, no real answer, apart from the gospel and the redemption we find in Christ. The point is this. The process we can see in church history is a form of the rejection of Christ as the cornerstone. The person and the work of Christ gets sidelined. The gospel loses its centrality as the main thing, the main mission of the church. And sidelining Christ leads to a kind of symbolic killing of Christ in that the church begins to reject the main thing. The church's message and ministry become focused and committed to improving people, improving society, rather than on giving a broken culture the gospel of the only one who can change lives. And then the final thing we need to recognize about this, also from the parable. Historically, God has moved his true work away from those who kill his real message. And he renews or revives that true work around those who will keep Christ as the true cornerstone. The American church is ample testimony to the truth. This, the last 50 years, you know that the church in America has had no impact upon the culture. None. Even when more dollars were poured into programs, whether it was great crusades, whether it was campus ministries, whatever you might think, whether it's the moral majority or reclaiming America for Christ, all of these movements into which millions, even billions of dollars have been poured, you realize that as they tried to renew America morally, re-embrace traditional values, as they made the renewal of culture the main thing, they sidelined Christ. And that program of renewing the culture through the Christian message has proven to essentially remove Christ from thousands and thousands and thousands of churches in America. And it hasn't changed the culture at all. And many of our friends go to churches where Sunday after Sunday after Sunday, some great message will be preached that's inspiring, that's provocative, that's encouraging, that's going to tell you to go out and this is how you live a better life. But it doesn't address your real problem. You are a broken human being. Some of us will never run in this Christian life. Some of us are so broken, 
we will only limp through this Christian life. So the raw, raw, cheer, cheer, go out because God has made you the greatest thing on the planet kind of message will never, ever help you at all. But where you are reminded that the only remedy for your brokenness is not in your improvement. It's in Jesus. It's in Jesus. It is only in Jesus. It's not in three essential principles for how you will transform your daily life. No. It's in coming to understand so fundamentally what Jesus said, apart from me, you can do nothing. You need Christ. I need Christ. So the final point, keeping Christ central. Christ, his redemptive message, this is the main thing. And here's why. It is only the gospel that accurately diagnoses the human condition, the real problems, the real issues in human life. And that diagnosis tells us that human beings have, from the very beginning, rejected the authority of God and relied upon their own authority. So all throughout history, it's been the manner of mankind to always build its own cities, to always operate on its own principles, to always create its own religions, to always create its own practices in independence from the true God. And this ungodly world and the ungodly mess of this ungodly world is the result. Secondly, then, it's only the gospel that changes everything. It's absolutely necessary that people who are dead in their transgressions and sins, who walk according to the patterns of this world, who are dominated by the God of this world in whom that demonic spirit is actively at work because they are sons of disobedience, it's absolutely necessary that the Holy Spirit would open their blind eyes and unstop their deaf ears and turn their stony hearts into hearts of flesh. That's the Spirit's work. And the Spirit does that work with the preaching of God's Word. Preaching it, teaching it, evangelizing with the word of God because saving faith comes by the hearing of the word, the word of the gospel. And that gospel sets forth the beloved son, Jesus Christ, as the necessary sacrifice and atonement for our sins. It is in Jesus that we have redemption through his blood the forgiveness of all of our trespasses according to the riches of God's grace. For while we were still helpless, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. And this demonstrates God's love for us. And that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He himself bore our sins 
in his body upon the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness because by his wounds we are healed. For God has done in Christ what the law, morality, weakened in the flesh could never do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, God condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh but according to the spirit. And therefore, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But rather, if anyone is in Christ... He has a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. For God has delivered us out of the domain of darkness and translated us into the kingdom of his beloved Son. Now, all of this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and then gave us this ministry of reconciliation, not counting their trespasses against them, He's entrusted to us this message of reconciliation so that you and I are ambassadors for Christ. God makes his appeal through us. This is the main thing. This is the main message. On behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For God made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Let us, therefore, not receive this grace of God in vain. Let's pray. Father, show us that deeply religious people can find themselves deeply lost because we've lost our way. We've lost the main thing, your son. So even this morning, Lord, renew us, revive us by your message that our hope is in no one else and in nothing else but your son, Jesus, and his blood, and his righteousness. Remind us again that what we need is not somebody pumping us up and encouraging us to do our best. What we need is to trust in Christ and to know that his perfect bestness is enough and always enough for us. That we can add nothing to what Christ has done for us and Lord, we can't take away from what Christ has done for us. You have given him to us. Enable us to trust in him. Help us to remember Jesus, wonderful, merciful Savior. In his name we pray. Amen.